This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome in to the latest edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. It is a very snowy morning where I am in Denver, Colorado. Uh, in New York City is Benjamin Hill. What's it like there? It's a run-of-the-mill uh, late December day. And by the time you listen to this podcast, it'll November. be November. Oh, wait, did I say December? Wait yeah. a second. Wait, <laughs> it's November now. Did I say that? Or did I say December? But by the time people listen to it, it'll be December. Correct. Yeah. But here in New York City on, uh, I don't even know, no, November 29th. Yeah. Man, this is a rollicking start. It's November 29th in New York City. You will hear this podcast when it drops on December 1st. And it's just a run-of-the-mill, chilly, but nothing over the top, a little bit gray. But, uh, uh, you know, it's the holidays. So things are uh, here in our neck of the woods where the offices are, uh, you know, looking at the Radio City Christmas yeah, tree. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Are in, uh, Full effect. Uh, I actually, I think the Rockefeller tree lighting is tonight. So it's oh, gonna okay. A, it's going to be a heck show uh, out, out and around the area uh, later today. And uh, this area of Manhattan, you know, Sixth Avenue, Fifth Avenue, around Fiftieth Street, Fifty First. Um, man, it is bustling with tourists for the holidays. And there's yeah. like, you know, seasonal food trucks that show up, like selling hot chocolate. And then I get a little bit. You know, I don't want to knock anyone. I know I've said this before. If people come to New York City and they want to do touristy things. That's great. But as a New Yorker for 20 years, sometimes I feel a little disdainful, like, man, you got the whole city to explore and you're paying seven dollars for hot chocolate and (laughs) walking around in the the most packed area of the whole city. That is true. Come on, man. I'll give you some real tips. Email me or hit me up on Twitter if you want some real hardcore New York City tips from a guy who knows me, Ben's Biz, who's better than everybody else. Of course, this is what I'm saying. How did I get into this? At Ben's Biz. You can find it. All of the good stuff at Ben's Biz, um, and uh, that where what I mean, are you a hot chocolate guy? Would you specifically make a trip somewhere to get a hot chocolate? And if so, well, you don't have to give us your top recommendation because people need that's like Ben's Biz Premium. You need to contact <laughs> Ben on Twitter, but like give us a good hot chocolate. Yeah, you know, as much as I'm talking about, I'm Mister. I know the city. I've been here. I'm not a hot chocolate guy. I, I I have it only incidentally. Of course, I I think it's impossible not to like hot chocolate. But yeah, that's true. It might be once a year, maybe, where I'm like, "Ooh, a hot chocolate! That sounds good." Now, I never seek it out. Um, not really a big hot drink guy as it is, you know. Period. So, you know, I I run hot. So no matter what time of year it is, I need something to cool me down. I hear you. I hear you. Um, well, as you may have uh, been able to tell, we are uh, just two thirds of our normal podcasting tripod uh, this week as uh, Samuel C. Dykstra is in uh, he's he's in Italy. Sam just up and jetted off to Rome, which is very cool. He texted me uh, a couple weeks ago and was like, I just did something very impulsive and I bought a ticket to Rome for after Thanksgiving. Uh, and I was just there a couple months ago. So we were like sharing, you know, thoughts and recommendations and all that. But 
That's pretty cool. He's having a he's having a much cooler Monday or Tuesday or whatever day this is than the two of us. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad that Sam finally made it to Rome. I mean, unfortunately, the Rome Braves. It's the off season right yeah. now. Yeah, we'll still find he some really, to talk. He really did not plan system. that well. No, I mean, dude, dude, you can see some minor league baseball while you're at it. Always mix business with pleasure. <laughs> he is in the Italian version and not uh, and not the Georgia version. But hey, I mean, that's that is home to. Uh, well, not Rome specifically, but the nation is home to one of the best baseball leagues in Europe. Uh, but again, it's over the offseason. So nice planning, Sam. Um, so yeah. no Sam this week, which, you know, uh, we, we're just happy for him out on his uh, on his sojourn. Uh, so you're stuck with me and Ben. Josh Jackson will swing by later. We're going to have a fun guest coming up later. Um, and we're going to talk a lot of minor league baseball things as we kick things off here for this uh, last episode of November. In 2022, you can get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. You can find us all on Twitter at Ben's Biz, at Sam Dykstra, MILB, and at Tyler Mon. I actually gave him his real middle initial when I said Samuel C. Dykstra because he's never going to hear this because he's not going to listen. So when he comes back, he'll be Samuel P. Dykstra again. Um, But I'm happy that I could deliver that for him. Now, before we dive into our first topic on this week's episode of the show before the show, Ben, I do want to address an email that we got from a loyal podcast listener who sent us his own Marvel hat draft, and it was very cool. Uh, for those of you who would also like to get in on this, go back and listen to last week's episode. We drafted our favorite logos of the uh, Marvel Defenders of the Diamond series, our, uh, our favorite looks for the 2023 season and beyond, the partnership between Marvel and Minor League Baseball. So Christian Finch got in touch, uh, and a big thanks to Christian for the email. He said he's been tuned into the podcast for about a year, and he likes it very much. I paid him to say that. Uh, he said he's a Twins fan and also a St. Paul Saints fan. He's been going to Saints games since 2006, and over the last two years, he's been to about 10 games or so. Uh, he said before 2021, when the Saints became an affiliated team, he said, I honestly knew very little about affiliated minor league teams uh, before 2021. But he said he knew uh, the Durham Bulls because, uh, quote, as my mother was in her 30s in the 1980s and we had cable, uh, he knew the Toledo Mudhens because of MASH. And he knew the uh, the E-Town Twins, RIP, the Elizabethan Twins, uh, the former rookie-level affiliate of the uh, Minnesota Twins, and also the Quad Cities River Bandits because he had a friend's little brother who played for those teams early in the 2000s. Uh, but he sent us his picks. Okay, so. Top five, no particular order, uh, or maybe these are in order. I don't know. The Wichita Wind Surge, which I uh, selected uh, as one of mine. The Louisville Bats, which I don't think any of us snagged. No, I don't think so. The Pensacola Blue Wahoos, which is a very good one. I did like Pensacola's. The teeth in Pensacola's uh, Marvel logo are very menacing. Um, The Lansing Lugnuts, he said that was his uh, 11-year-old son's pick. um, Which is, it's very similar to the Lugnuts logo, but he's almost like electrified. Uh, in the Marvel Defenders of the Diamond version. Um, And then last, Christian picked the St. Paul Saints, his hometown team. He said, it's not quite as good as he hoped, but he said, I'm glad it's not the team mascot Madonna, which isn't that the pig? Yeah, Madonna is a pig, and uh, St. Paul has a uh, long history of celebrating pigs, as the St. Paul Saints do. And uh, I'm not going to get into the history because I don't remember it too much, but Essentially, in the very early days of St. Paul, when it was a stop on a trading route, a man with the nickname of Pig Eye opened like a bar, and it was like Pig's Eye Tavern. And this guy, 
Um, hey, we talk about problematic characters in today's society. This dude, old pig's eye was super, super problematic. And uh, but nonetheless, pig's eye is what got the Saints to uh, celebrate um, pigs at the ballpark. They've had a ball pig every year, which changes every year. And their mascot is a pig, Madonna. We are going to save the uh, the story of the pig's eye guy for uh, the show before the show after dark. That's our it's the the insiders, the Patreon feed where you get all the un uh, <laughs> the unedited content from the show yeah, before the show. You. Talking about problematic characters of minor league baseball years past. Um, but a huge thanks to Christian Finch. Very cool of him for uh, for writing in. And again, you can send us your drafts as well at MILB uh, or at podcast at MILB.com. So with that, let's dive into some topics for this week's episode of the show before the show. Um, Miguel Cabrera has announced that 2023 will be his last season the longtime legend uh and future hall of famer from the miami well back then the florida marlins and the detroit tigers um a guy who did not spend a lot of time in minor league baseball because he made it to the big leagues i believe at 19 uh and is as close to a living legend as baseball players get. Uh, and we are lucky enough to have witnessed uh, a lot of those over this last generation of baseball. But Miguel Cabrera is one of those dudes who I'll just always have a soft spot for. I've always loved Miggy. He's one of those guys that uh, I can't get enough of watching hit. Even in the years that were lean years for Miguel Cabrera, uh, I always loved watching him hit. And uh, he's I'm, I'm excited that he is a guy who now gets to walk into the sunset, having accomplished the things that he did in 2022, especially reaching 3000 hits, reaching 500 homers, all those uh, career accolades that he's gotten to, but Ben put together some Miguel Cabrera trivia. And uh, I have not checked this out. It was on Twitter yesterday. I've been trying to spend uh, a little bit less time on that website. Um, But Ben put together some Miguel Cabrera trivia and I get to be the Guinea pig or the Madonna, let's say, uh mud donna for uh for some of these questions let's hear it yeah i've got a miguel cabrera related question and then a few peripheral things the you know time time depending on time because you know when you once you start going down a rabbit hole it, it can go for a long time but often when veteran players retire or get to the end of their careers i like to look at their minor league baseball stats um to get a sense of like how long ago they started out and what teams they played for and miguel cabrera Started playing professionally in the year 2000. I mean, Tyler, cue the... the year 2000. Thank you. In the year <laughs> you 2000. Already, you already knew where I was going with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew that that would just be like catnip for you. But in the year 2000, Miguel Cabrera, at the age of 17, made his uh, professional debut in the minor leagues. And um, I believe he's the last player left to play in the year 2000, unless maybe Nelson Cruz. I need to look into that. Um, but he goes all the way back to the 2000 season. He started the year. This is age 17 season, age 17. I mean, geez, so young to be playing professional baseball. He spent most of that season after getting drafted in the Gulf coast league, and then finished the 2000 season with eight games for which now defunct minor league team. I can give you a hint to start unless you know it already. I, I think I do. Uh, okay, it's in the Marlins system. Yeah. Drafted a New by York, my, uh, a New York Penn League team. And it's the New York Penn League, correct. Was it the Jamestown Jammers? Good guess. Dang it. 
Incorrect. Um, Jamestown Jammers. Uh, I do not remember who they were a Marlins affiliate for a time, but they were not a Marlins affiliate at this time. Pirates. Miguel Cabrera is the last active alumnus of this team. Is it the Batavia Muck Dogs? No, again, Batavia and they were. I think late in their in their franchise history, they were a Marlins affiliate. They were, but Batavia yeah. went all the way through 2019. So we've got a lot of active. Uh, yeah. Muck dogs well, yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. Still roam in the universe. Uh, oh, Jamestown went up through, I believe, 2014. So I'm sure we could find some active jammers out there. But this one. Oh uh, wow! So yeah, this is that is a that is a big hint, uh, and it also. Uh, removes me having really any idea. Yeah, this is the penultimate season of this franchise's existence. They also played in 2001 and then relocated to Aberdeen and became the Ironbirds. Oh! This is the pre-Aberdeen Ironbirds. They played in. They were one of those, you know, this is the New York Penn League, which often was, you know, much more concentrated in New York and Pennsylvania than it became. It was in one of those two states. It was in New York State. Was it in Oneonta? Good guess, Oneonta. No, they uh, that that franchise lasted up through two thousand eight or so. Really? Oh, I didn't realize they were around that long. Um, yeah, but that's a that's a good guess. I have um, no idea. All right, well, I'm going to tell you the last alumnus of the Utica Blue Sox. Utica Blue Sox. Utica Blue Sox. That is a good one. That's also uh, one of my. It's a, a team uh, in one of my favorite baseball stories of all time. I believe that the famous story of Larry Walker cutting back across the diamond um, when he was playing his first uh, professional baseball season, he uh, went from first to third on a fly ball. It was caught. And rather than going back and tagging second base, he just cut straight across the pitcher's mound. I believe he was on the Utica Blue Sox uh, for that. And now checking. the He was 1985. He was on the Utica Blue Sox for 62 games. Wow. Yeah. Cabrera I only played eight games for Utica in 2000. Uh, you know, finished the season there. You know, small sample size, not very remarkable. He went eight hits and 32 at-bats, um, two doubles. That was his only extra base hits. Uh, but he was 17 years old, and that's where he ended the season. Uh, Utica played one more season, went to Aberdeen in 2002. And another interesting fact about this team, the 2000 Utica Blue Sox, is all four of their position players – who went on to the major leagues have combined for 1,029 and counting because Cabrera is still going to play in uh, 2023. But the four position players on the 2000 Utica Blue Sox combined for 1,029 major league home runs. Wow. Position players on that team who went on to the majors hit over a thousand home runs in the major leagues. That's amazing. Who were the other three? And Cabrera has less than half. I mean, he still has the most by far, but he is, 507, I believe, heading into 2023. But you also have, with 317 career home runs, Adrian Gonzalez. Wow. Josh Willingham with 195 home runs. And then, um, who has it? I have to click on the team. Wilson. Uh, Wilson, a catcher. um, uh, No. Um, All I can think of now is Preston Wilson. Josh Wilson. Josh Josh Wilson. Yeah. So four position players on the 2000 Utica Blue Sox made it to the major leagues. And combined for over a thousand home runs. Yeah. That's amazing. 
I mean, Josh Wilson just hit 10 in his career, but Josh Willingham, 195, Adrian Gonzalez, 317, Miguel, Miguel Cabrera, um, 507 and counting. So the challenge to you, the listeners out there, and this is a tough one, find a New York Penn League team that had a quartet of players who went on to hit more than 1,000. More than 1,000 home runs. Major league home runs. That is amazing. Uh, and it goes to show you, I mean, you never know who you were seeing at the ballpark night in and night out. If you think like, ah, oh, well, these guys, you know, chances are they're not going to make it. It's such a long slog. Yeah, that's true. But you could also be a fan, you know, in late summer of 2000, going to a Utica Blue Sox game and seeing uh, four future big leaguers who would combine for over a thousand home runs. Um, that is pretty incredible stuff. Uh, yeah. And I have some peripheral stuff related yeah. to this because I started going down a rabbit hole. Yeah. I don't want to let it go too tedious. But I started looking at other New York Penn League teams. Um Pittsfield had a team through 2001 in that very last season, 2001, they were an Astros affiliate. Um, so there's one year, of the Pittsfield Astros, the last Pittsfield Astro uh, remaining in the major leagues, you know, he's not there anymore, but the, the one who lasted the longest was Brooks Conrad, 2001 Houston Astro who played in the majors through 2014. But pri- <clears throat> excuse me, prior to that, they were the Pittsfield Mets and uh, the last Pittsfield Mets, to uh, appear in the major leagues. He played all the way through 2015. He played for Pittsfield in 1997 and pitched in the major leagues through 2015. Any guesses who the last Pittsfield Mets The last was? Pittsfield Mets. Who did he finish his career with? He finished his career with the Pittsburgh Pirates. In 2015. So drafted by the Mets, finishes his career as a veteran dude with the Pirates in 2015. Big leaguer with the Mets? No? No, never played in the majors with the Mets. Made his MLB de- debut actually in 1999. Okay. Ended his major league career at the end of the 2015 season with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He broke in. This should help with the Florida Marlins. Uh, Josh Beckett. No. Josh Beckett was never a 2015 Pittsburgh Pirate. He played for uh, the Marlins, Blue Jays, Yankees, Pirates twice, and Phillies. There is somebody out there is like, yeah, I know, I know who it is. Um, I'm now looking at the 2015 Pirates to see if I can pick out uh, who it would have been. Oh, AJ Burnett. Correct. Correct. Interesting. Huh. I would that I, that would have been a long way down in my guesses, but that yeah, because when I think of AJ Burnett, I do think of him as a as a Marlin. Um, huh. Wow, he also he was thirty eight in that season. He does not feel that old to me. Um, interesting. Yeah, the AJ last, Burnett debuted in ninety nine with the Marlins. Pitched for them uh, through 05, three years of the Blue Jays, three years of the Yankees. And then uh, the Pirates and Phillies uh, to wrap up. Um, huh, the last Pittsfield met. Yeah, so I find these questions uh, fun. And if you're listening to this and you find this goofball stuff kind of fun, uh, if you have any, um, you know, this type of trivia to share, you know, we love to talk about it, do little segments like this, um, you know, last active alumnus of a certain team or who was, you know, who's who's the last guy playing from this team or who was the last who since retired, um, you know, try to keep it in, uh, with entities that at least went into the 21st century or at least the late 90s. Yeah. You know, you're you're going 
it's almost impossible once you're getting the previous decades with this kind of stuff. But uh, I always loved that. And it was precipitated by, you know, Miguel Cabrera retiring, but then you can go down that rabbit hole a little bit. One more random one for you. I won't even make this a trivia question, but the New Jersey Cardinals, remember them in the New York Penn league? No, they, uh, actually. Yeah. They played, uh, they became the state college spikes. I believe okay. back in the 2005 season. Um, but there's a guy who played for the 2003 New Jersey Cardinals who is still active in the major leagues, the last active New Jersey Cardinal. And uh, this is a tough one. I don't know. I, I would never get it. But just for the record, Donovan Solano. Wow. Played for the Reds this season and uh, is a former New Jersey Cardinal. And another guy who I would not expect to be that old. I would not have thought that Donovan Solano, he's 30, he'll be 35 in uh, like two weeks, which like there are people listening, I mean, myself included, were like 34 is not old. Um, but yeah, wow. I would not, I would not have guessed that. Uh, he also, Donovan Solano, um, between 2016 and 2018, only played nine big league games. And he has since returned for like, the majority of the last four years uh, in the big leagues. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. I think I said 2003. He was a 2005 New Jersey Cardinal. Okay. Uh, at the age of, at the age of 17, the last active New Jersey Cardinal. Wow. Uh, yeah, and he's had a real up and down career. Spent much more time in the minors, but and yes, old for Major League Baseball. Yes, but right, not old in the scheme of life. But, not old uh, for life. You know. Yeah, as they say. Um. Well. If you like uh, trivia and all things Ben's Biz, you should subscribe to the Ben's Biz newsletter, by the way. You can go to MILB.com and uh, click on the newsletters and add your subscription there um, because Ben's got all kinds of good stuff in the newsletter from week to week and just rolling around in his brain as well. Um, And a place where uh, Ben has been uh, able to watch an event grow year after year and... uh, morph and change and do all that is the winter meetings. And we are coming up on the winter meetings here in 2022. The winter meetings have changed a lot over the last couple of years. Um, Formerly what was officially a minor league baseball event. Everybody thinks of the winter meetings is like, Oh, free agent signings and trades and all that type of stuff. And while that's true, uh, the winter meetings were for the longest time, officially a minor league baseball uh, event, big league things happened there, but it was all about the minor leagues. They have now changed a lot uh, with the restructuring of minor league baseball, the takeover of minor league baseball by major league baseball and all of that. But the winter meetings coming up in San Diego. Um, ben, tell us about, you know, what people can expect if people are headed to the winter meetings or if they just don't know what the winter meetings really are now. Um, what what does this event look like from the minor league perspective in 2022? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what to expect, some of it, that's one of the reasons I'm uh, excited to go because I don't fully know what to expect um, you know, I went to the winter meetings every year between 2007 and 2019. And Tyler, like you said, um, you know, it was always an event organized by minor league baseball, which is something I always tried to point out because uh, for a casual fan or even a not casual fan, you think of the winter meetings, you think of all, you know, the national media there, uh, you know, regional media representing, you know, who cover all 30 teams, uh, all the news emanating from the winter meetings was always, you know, trades and free agent signings and things at the MLB level. But that was fundamentally a minor league event. And, you know, 80 percent of what was going on more under the radar was minor league baseball representatives from every single team meetings related to all aspects of, you know, minor league baseball, you know, league meetings, you know, talking about 
Um, you know, you have groundskeepers getting together, umpires. I mean, it's just all of baseball. Um, you know, there was uh, business seminars and, uh, you know, breakout sessions, uh, the trade show, this massive entity took place every year. The job fair uh, took place every year with hundreds of, uh, you know, industry uh, aspiring industry uh, hopefuls trying to break into the game. Um, you know, a massive minor league baseball event. And, uh, you know, I usually covered the minor league side, uh, of course. And, uh, you know, then 2020, of course, it didn't happen at all amid COVID. It did happen last year, but really kind of subdued and stripped down. I didn't go last year. Um, it it was just it didn't work out for where I was in life at the moment. And um, but this year is kind of back to the new normal. It's in San Diego, which is where it was the last time I went in 2019. Uh, but there is no job fair. There is no trade show. Uh, it's a day shorter. Um, there'll still be, you know, some various sessions throughout minor league baseball, you know, breakout sessions, um, you know, seminars, things of interest to people in the industry. You know, I'm sure a lot of different, you know, meetings among executives and among leagues. Um, but without some of those larger, you know, trade show, uh, job fair type things, it'll, it will be st more stripped down. Uh, I'm not exactly sure at the moment specifically what I'll be covering, except for the, uh, there'll be some awards on Sunday night, you know, the Golden Bobblehead Awards, some Best Promotion Awards. I'll certainly cover that uh, some. And uh, But for me, uh, um, I'm sure I'll write about other things, and uh, I'll be talking to you live and direct from San Diego next week. But for me, after this is my first industry event in three years. And uh, basically, for over a decade plus prior to that, it was two industry events every year, the promo seminar uh, in late September, early October, and then the winter meetings in early December. And, um, you know, so there was always this, you know, twice a year for a decade plus, I've been to probably, you know, 22, 23, 24 industry events in my career. And it was always such a great way to, you know, just talk to people. And that's what I want to do more than anything this year. I think, you know, when I did it year after year, sometimes I'd be like, oh, man, here we go again. It's exhausting. But with three years off and so much change in the industry um, on a lot of fronts, you know, a lot of staff has changed, you know, over the restructuring and, uh, you know, post-COVID, um, you know, a lot of people changed careers or people who were laid, laid off or furloughed didn't come back to the industry. So I think I need more than ever a chance to, you know, connect with as many people as possible. So I uh, hope to see as many people as I can at the winter meetings, meet people, uh, reestablish connections and um, just get a sense, you know, the lay, the lay of the land, because um, it's been... Uh, well over a thousand days since my last winter meetings. So that'll be the big thing. And um, I always get stressed before winter meetings, regardless, like, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to cover it? Why haven't I gotten my haircut? How come I don't have any good pants that fit me? I'm the only guy wearing jeans. Oh yeah, you're the scruffy writer who just like lingers around the periphery. Good job, dude. But no, I'm going to feel good about it. And um, really looking forward to, uh, you know, having as many conversations as possible and uh, kind of seeing what the new normal is for the baseball winter meetings. I'll, yeah. be, uh, I'll be getting there on Sunday and uh, staying through Wednesday. And um, oh yeah, so maybe we'll talk once I get back next week. But regardless, um, there'll certainly be a lot to talk about. Well, and there are certainly far worse places to be going than San Diego uh, in the beginning of December. Um, so keep an eye on uh, Ben's Twitter feed at Ben's Biz and Instagram at the Ben's Biz, and uh, that nearly leads us to our interview segment uh, for this week's edition of the show. Before the show, Ben's also got some ballpark guides that are on the way. 
Again, you can subscribe to the newsletter at MILB.com. There's also uh, there's a fun picture of Josh Jackson in every newsletter, uh, which you should uh, you should dive in just for that, if nothing else. Even if you don't read any of the stuff, which you should read all of it. But you get a picture of Josh, and there's far uh, more that that will add to your life than I think you could even expect. You know? Like, I think people will see the Josh pictures and be like, oh, my day is better now. 100%. I feel that way every time. Yeah. He has a... Uh... A newsletter segment in relation to the podcast segment um, It's called Josh Jackson Interrupts, and he gives a little preview of the upcoming Ghosts of the Miners and uh, a unique picture every week of him interrupting in some way, <laughs> shape, or form, and it is wonderful. It is high art. I mean, I would literally get some of those. Um, I'd love to get them printed out, you know, eight and a half by 11 framed. You know, if I ever move into a house instead of apartment, I would have a wall of Josh, <laughs> as I think most of us would. So, um, yeah, subscribe to the newsletter, if only for that, the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter. Um, really been enjoying that. And in this week's newsletter, you know, Tyler, it's the holiday season. And uh, I got to thinking about what's going on at minor league ballparks across the country, um, you know, in relation to holiday events. And there's several teams. And I think this is something specifically that's really ramped up over the last several years. But having, you know, full scale like light shows at the ballpark and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Charlotte. Uh, what is that truest field now um they have the light the nights festival and if you know that ballpark truest field it's an uptown charlotte it has gorgeous city skyline it's just a really scenic place at all times but now they have the entire ballpark lit up you know the seats and the field and it's a winter wonderland type environment but not only that not only a walkthrough light show they have an ice rink where they're having some organized hockey games but also you can you know show up and rent skates and do free skating they have a children's tubing hill which Come on, guys, be more inclusive. I would like the tube as well. And uh, yeah, where's the where's the grown up tubing hill? Yeah, where's the adult tubes? Rip off. But uh, a children's tubing hill, <laughs> tubing hill, an ice rink, and a Christmas village holiday market. You know, with a European style, you know, food and drink and beverage stuff, and a lot of local vendors, you know, selling holiday gifts. So I mean, that is a massive operation here uh, taking place in Charlotte. So that one probably is the most varied one going on, but Fayetteville has a big holiday light show um, going on, which I believe is their first. Um, Fayetteville, that's uh, Segra Stadium in Fayetteville, North Carolina, home of the Woodpeckers, uh, the Rocket City Trash Pandas playing you know, in the greater Huntsville area, Madison, Alabama. They have a drive-through light show and then inside the ballpark, a you know winter wonderland as well. And also Columbia, who... Uh, you know, Fayville plays at Segra Stadium. Columbia plays at Segra Park. Columbia Fireflies. And, you know, the Fireflies, the tagline of let's glow, some glow-in-the-dark uniform elements. Um, they're making the ballpark glow now with their Fireflies holiday lights extravaganza with over one million lights in the ballpark. And I was just curious. Uh, when I was putting this together for the newsletter, I was like, I want to talk to one of these teams like, what are the logistics of stringing a ballpark with one million lights? I imagine you get some outside help as much as minor league baseball is a roll up your sleeves and just do it kind of industry. I'm not sure if, <laughs> if that's something a team does internally, um, but we're going to find out. We're going to go live and direct to Columbia, South Carolina right now, talk to the Fireflies and find out about what it's like to light up your ballpark with over one million lights and what else is going on at Segra Stadium. No, Segra Park. Segra Park, home of the Columbia Fireflies.
I'm Ben Hill, and as you know... Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It is the holiday season. I mean, how could you not know that? And uh, tied in with the holiday season, a lot of minor league teams are, of course, doing holiday-themed events. One of the more ambitious and certainly one of the more uh, luminescent events is the Columbia Fireflies Holiday Lights Initiative display, whatever you want to call it, going on right now um, with over one million lights at the ballpark, a lot of other stuff going on, a great place for the community to come together over the holidays. And I found myself curious over how a ballpark gets strung with over a million lights and how you put an event like something like this together. So with me right now is Fireflies president Brad Shank and Fireflies broadcaster, media relations manager John Kosis here to talk all about it. Guys, thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, so let's start with the most obvious question. I mean, it's Fireflies Holiday Lights. First time you've ever done something like this. What gave you the idea to do it in the first place and put this all together? Yeah, well, uh, we figured we were we hadn't done anything really crazy in a while. So we wanted to decide to do something a little outside the box. Um, You know, this actually started in some ways. It almost started somewhat out of necessity. Um, You know, I've been kind of talking through this and and I think we originally started talking February of 2020, actually, um, well before we knew that everything was going to change very, um, very, very um, quickly. And, and so we had started talking about this. It actually came from um, an employee who, who had worked here at that time, and he had come from the water park world. So he had worked in a water park in Vegas, and he said, hey, you know, we're talking about how can we do more events here um, you know, with us being the anchor tenant here at the Bull Street District and really trying to drive people onto the district so that more development and things go in around us. You know, that that winter time was always a time when we were saying, how can we how can we draw people in? What can we do to draw people in in pretty big numbers consistently? And uh, he said, hey, you know, a lot of the water parks in Vegas, they would do these Christmas light shows. They do holiday lights. Um, They do it at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. You know, it actually was a pretty cool thing. You can sell tickets. You know, it can it can actually generate some revenue um, and it's great for driving traffic. So. That was kind of the first that it was brought up. Um, at that point, you know, it wasn't necessarily something we were looking really hard into. But then after the season was really killed in 2020, um, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot else going on. So at that point, I jumped in with both feet trying to figure out, hey, is this something we could get going since we are an outdoor venue? Um, and, and as we were working through things, is that something we could do that winter um, since we did lose the season? So we worked really hard to try and get there. The unfortunate part was, as we all know, with supply chain and everything else, nothing happened really quickly at that time. So getting it together in that amount of time wasn't uh, wasn't something we were able to do. Continued working through it. Um, you know, we were we were kind of on the fence. I, I I'm not a light expert. Um, I love Chevy Chase. I love Clark Griswold, but him I am not. So I I knew we needed some expert help with this, and so we started trying to find the right company to partner with that would be the expert on the lighting side. 
And so we worked through that 2021, tried to get it done, just couldn't quite get there. Um, again, some of the supply chain issues. And then this year we finally came to an agreement right around um, January or February of 22. And believe it or not, we ordered, you know, the company ordered lights back in January and those didn't arrive until I think the beginning of September. So um, you need every, every day that you can get with all the supply chain issues. So now, you know, I've absolutely after two years of kind of working through this, it's, it's fun to see it finally come together. Yeah. Long journey to get this, uh, the ballpark lit up and um, you know, over 1 million lights. So once you finally got those lights after a long delay um, you know, for me and a lot of people, you know, it's intimidating sometimes to think of, you know, how would you even decorate one house? And you have an entire ballpark, one million lights. I just imagine people, you know, tripping and getting tangled up and trying to figure out what plug goes where. How do you string up a ballpark with one million lights? And what's the process like in terms of knowing what you're going to do beforehand and then making it reality? Well, that that was that was what we were all wondering, you know, and and in all all honesty, that was kind of the the whole process. So the first trucks, you know, we got uh, back in July, we got kind of an idea of, hey, here's the theme. We had the partners um, come out that that were working with us that had done other light shows, so they gave us a little bit of an idea. Hey, here's what we're thinking about um, this this area of the ballpark. Here's what we're thinking about doing this. Um, you know, so there was okay. We're going to do a big Christmas tree over here. We're going to do a light tunnel there. We're going to have this kind of theme. Um, so we got some of the generalities, and a lot of it at that point was just figuring out: Do we need to add? more power and electrical or convenience throughout the ballpark. How long are the light runs going to need to be? Um, so that was all just very beginning stages. But as far as seeing it drawn on paper to actually doing it, there's a lot of steps in between there. Um, the first trucks arrived October 12th. So if that gives you any kind of an idea, um, the we had four tractor trailers, four 54 foot tractor trailers come over the course of about two weeks um, that were completely full of 11 foot tall, um, steel frame toy soldiers that are lit up and, um, boxes and pallets and boxes of lights and, and all kinds of different, um, displays. So those started coming in and, and literally when they came in from October 12th through, you know, right before we opened, um, on the 19th and 20th, you know, that was, it was six days a week, you know, about 12 people a day, pretty much working. Um, combination of our staff, some of the people from there, we also had some part-time staff come in. Um, but you, you just think about even just unboxing string lights to string the entire seating bowl and testing each strand. I mean, days, like literally days of just testing lights to make sure the strands worked because out of a million lights, even if you have 1% that you know, shows up and it's working, it's obviously a pretty significant amount. So it was, it was definitely a process that over the course of it, we learned a ton about how this all comes together and, and what it takes to get this done. Yeah. And um, obviously you, you're not the only team in minor league baseball doing something like this right now, but you are the only team doing something like this, whose identity and branding since the beginning is tied into lights and glowing um was that part of the motivation to do this in the first place or just thinking what a natural tie-in it would be being the fireflies to really make the whole ballpark glow yeah absolutely i mean it, it was it was a natural tie-in for sure i mean that was 
um, as we started talking about it, it, it just made sense because when you think about, you know, what we've always been about, our brand, it's bright. It literally glows. You know, when it comes to our, our on-field caps, all, any white thread on there is, is glow in the dark. Um, so that has always been kind of our identity and it even matches, you know, obviously you've been to the ballpark before, but even with our directional signage, we have, you know, a part of that that's kind of luminescent and has lights in it. So we've embraced that from, from the beginning, embraced the glow, so, so to speak, but, um, you know, it definitely was a nice tie-in with it. I think, you know, was that the main reason? No, but, but I think it always is good when it ties in with your brand. Yeah. And the lights are obviously the whole centerpiece of what you're doing right now. And, um, I'm sure serves as a motivation for people to come out and see the ballpark, but that's not the only thing going on. Got a lot of stuff surrounding the lights itself. Um, so what's the experience like for the fans or just people in the community who are, are visiting this right now? How's it all set up? Yeah. So they come in through the gates and, and even the front gates and the, and the areas out front are, are lit up. Um, you know, all of our gates have string lights going up and down them with colored lights. Um, we have four 11 foot toy soldiers that are lit up guarding the gates and, when you walk through the gates, that's really kind of my favorite part is watching people's face as they get in and see what it is. A lot of the responses, uh, you know, just kind of shock because this is way more than they thought it would be. That That's the, the, the general theme is, well, I thought this was just going to be a few lights or I thought this was just going to be, you know, kind of, hey, we'll walk around. There will be some lights. There will be a Christmas tree. And, and that's about it. And then when they walk in, um, it, they're blown away. Um, so they can walk throughout the entire concourse. Our, our uh, director of food and beverage, David Schrouder, did a fantastic job. He put together some holiday themed drinks and, and, you know, a smoked turkey leg because, you know, that obviously kind of alludes to that Christmas time and, and eating the turkey. Um, we've got fire pits out in the right field corner so that people can buy s'more packs and roast marshmallows. Um, that's probably been our most popular item. I mean, there's something about sitting around a fire this time of year that I think really draws people in and just they can relax, watch the lights. Um, and then we've also got some some areas where there are things for kids to do. So um, Lexington Medical Center, who's one of our sponsors, they provided a mailbox so that kids could write letters to Santa and, and do coloring activities that are Christmas themed. Um, we've got a partnership with Home Depot and, and every Friday night kids can come in and they can make their own crafts like think like old wooden toys. Um, they can make a little wooden race car and actually hammer nails in and, and do those types of things so they can make their own crafts. Um, and then obviously the big man himself, Santa is here um, you know on every Saturday night and then we'll have him more often leading up. Um, but really that's the biggest thing that I think being a minor league baseball team really lent itself to us knowing that we have to provide more than just the attraction, right? No different than a baseball game. Um, we want to provide things that are going to provide a lot of value to people when they come out to the park. So it's not just, Hey, I went out and I walked around and I looked at lights. Hey, I, I had s'mores and, um, we have a, a, it's 12 feet long or 14 feet long fiberglass Santa sleigh that people can get in for pictures and 30 foot tall Christmas tree. It's, it's providing that experience and, and we're still adding to it. Um, you know, John can tell you, we've been talking in meetings about, okay, what else can we do? What are the other things we can do? So we're going to try and get some more holiday vendors here to set up and, and have almost like a holiday market similar to, you know, like, like you said, there are a lot of teams that do things like this. 
similar to Charlotte. I mean, that's their big allure is kind of the holiday market feel and getting people to buy holiday gifts and crafts. Um, just continuing to try and add to the experience, probably add in some fake snow machines um, just because that's fun for the kids to run around and um, that'll keep them busy for quite a while. I know my six-year-old, that would keep him running around in circles trying to catch fake snow in his mouth for um, you know quite a while until he realizes it's soap and spits it out and uh, doesn't like the taste of it. But um, you know, just different things like that. So you know, we we tried to treat this as we're we're not going to change our identity. We are who we are. We're minor league baseball. We're fun. We're full of activities. We're family fun. So we just tried to provide that same experience when it comes to the holiday heights. Yeah, to piggyback off what Brad's saying, I really think the way the community has embraced it has been awesome. Like, obviously, having fans come in and, and do more than just walk around, like hearing people talk to other people or like um, give a pup cup to a dog type thing. That's been great. But what the community, as far as businesses, has done has been fantastic. He, Brad already mentioned LexMed and Home Depot, but we've got a local toy store that's like on the concourse every single night and they're selling these glasses that when you look at the lights, like presents or Santa or reindeers pop out and like a bunch of knickknacks, stocking stuffer things. Uh, we have an auto group that just ended up coming on on, uh, on board and they're doing some stuff with us. So like the more people are finding out about this event, the more they're saying, not just, hey, can I be a part of it? But how can I influence this in a way that makes things better for the kids? Which when you think about holidays, it's always, you know, when I think and reminisce about my childhood, it's like, things my parents did to make the thing special for us, we're able to kind of do for our community. And I think that's just something that is truly special. Yeah. And so this opened at Segra Park on November 19th. We're talking on December 1st. This is going all the way through the end of the year. So a lot of time left uh, with it. Um, you know, what kind of numbers or um, I don't know if you're tracking attendance the same way you would at a minor league game, but uh, you know, what kind of numbers are you seeing so far? And is it is, is it in line with your expectations? And I would imagine with now December upon us that the crowds will probably get bigger going forward as we get closer to Christmas and also as more and more people hear about this. Yeah, right. I mean, leading up, we always thought, you know, we opened early and, and that was intentionally because it's going to take a while to figure things out. We've already changed our um, kind of our staffing model a few different times because it is it is very different from from a baseball game. Um, so really anything leading up to December 1st, I looked at as this is kind of soft openings, training our staff, getting used to the crowds, where are they, where are they kind of migrating to, what are the traffic patterns like? And so, but even with that, um, through these first, you know, like week and a half, there's been about 4,000 people that have come out to enjoy the lights already. Um, like you said, we've, we've expected from the beginning, you know, after we get, into December, the weekends will start to pick up a little bit more, I think. And then once we get to kids being out of school around the you know 16th of December, I think that's when it'll really crank up. Um, we've been talking, you know, I mean, minor league baseball is a tight knit community. So as we were talking through all this, you know, I called um, Jonesy, Chris Jones, because he had been the one who kind of initially did this in Sugarland. So Sugarland's been doing um, their holiday lights for about eight years. So we talked with him and then I've talked with Ty, who's the, the GM there and has been there the whole time. And they've been great about just filling us in on, OK, here's what to expect as far as numbers. Um, here's what you should look for as far as staffing levels and just helping out. I mean, it's just been a really cool thing to see, um, you know, that that camaraderie and just, you know, everybody wants to help 
others have success with these ventures when it comes to the minor league baseball world. Um, and so that's been really helpful. Um, you know, as far as what we're expecting or the expectation, I think um, our goal for this first year was to draw in 20,000 people over the course of, you know, that November 19th through December 31st. Um, and, and that would be about 500 people on average a day. So we figured, you know, that's not too far out there that it's not, you know, completely unattainable. Um, but I think it would be a big impact, obviously, to have that many people visiting in November and December, which is normally a time of year for us that's, you know, just pretty quiet. Yeah. And obviously people are thinking about holiday shopping. Um, you know, perhaps you can entice them to consider Columbia Fireflies uh, gear as part of their holiday shopping and tied in with, uh, you know, gear, new merchandise, new looks. Um, you know, wanted to close by asking you about this uh, new hat. I've seen it on Twitter uh, or a new alternate logo. Um, you know, glow in the dark has always been, you know, part of the Fireflies brand to an extent, but this hat really glows in the dark. Um, you tell us about this uh, alternate logo and uh, yeah, just how much it glows. Yeah. Over, you know, over the course of our lifespan, um, one of the things that we found is, you know, that that Mason jar logo was one originally we didn't use it a ton. Um, it was kind of a tertiary logo that we had on on the outskirts. We didn't use it a ton. And then we started using it for some fashion caps and some apparel and different things in the store. Um, we noticed people were buying it pretty frequently. And then the more and more we added to, to make available out there, it just was flying off the shelves. So people really like, I, I think it's the, I think it's the nostalgia, you know, of, hell oh, yeah, I remember going out with a Mason jar and catching fireflies in my backyard and, and doing that. So um, that's just something that's kind of evolved and become more popular. So a couple of years ago, we actually switched our, uh, our VP jerseys to have the Mason jar logo instead of the, the kind of fireflies bug iconic logo. And that was, again, something that, that went over really well with fans. So we said, OK, let's let's see which, you know, we, we have that CF logo um, that kind of looks like a flame. And, you know, that that one's always been one that some people have really liked and other people have just kind of been, you know, so so on. Um, so we said, well, let's let's see what we can do to switch out one of these on field caps with the CF that and um with it it added a bunch of that white thread the the glow in the dark thread uh to the logo on the front of the cap so like you said i mean that that video was a phenomenal way of showing just how luminescent and and, and how much it glows so i'm excited to see that and then i love the bill too you know being that true fireflies neon yellow um i i love that look of it as well which i think just it just pops it kind of so that old school look like the old Expos hats, you know, with the white panel on the front and, and the, the multicolors and other areas, which which I think people like me who grew up with that look, I think that nostalgia is also pretty, pretty cool to get them excited about. Cool. Well, uh, I'll close with this because you mentioned, uh, you know, the big man himself is at the ballpark every day right now. Uh, that being Santa Claus, if you, Brad and John, are able to get some one on one time with them, what are you asking for this holiday season? Ooh. I'll let John go first. I got to think about that. So I think uh, if we're going to keep it baseball related, you know, everyone always asks for a red bicycle, right? That's the iconic Christmas gift. The Fireflies have not had a cycle yet in franchise history. So I'd ask the big man for the Fireflies first cycle. I think that'd be a real good thing. That's a good one. Um, man, for me, 
you know, I, I think if, if we're going to kind of stick with that baseball theme, um, you know, we, we have yet to have a playoff appearance here in Columbia since moving here in 2016. We came close last year and, and um, you know, just didn't quite have enough gas in the tank at the end of the year and also ran up against Charleston, who was basically a, a steamroller. Um, so I would love to get a playoff appearance because I, I think that would be something the community here would really enjoy behind as well. All right. So uh, we got cycles playoff appearances and of course you know peace on earth and goodwill to man all of mankind yeah, right. to experience <laughs> the miracle on bull street that is fireflies holiday lights right there you go running through december 31st at segra park uh brad and john with the columbia fireflies uh, thanks so much for joining me here on the show before the show podcast thanks for having us ben Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was founded in the 1930s. The others were nowhere to be found at all. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Mayfield Clothiers. B. The Mayberry Button-Ups. C. The Mayville Shirtsleevers. You're due for a dressing down if you didn't pick A. The Mayfield Clothiers, who were the cat's meow in the kitty league in the middle of the 20th century. The Kentucky-Illinois-Tennessee League, as the circuit was formerly called, wasn't kitting around. <laughs> it existed in several different iterations over a period of decades. The one the Clothiers showed up in, I mean, showed up in, <laughs> fielded a Mayfield-Kentucky club from 1936 to 1955 with a pause for the war years. Representing the seat of Graves County, the Clothiers were just about buried in their inaugural campaign. Although that 36 team went 37-82, and 82, a bitter season under the management of L.L. Sweetland, then Bum Robinson, then Rip Wheeler, Mayfield may have felt it deserved better. After all, not even the Mayfield pants makers of the 1920s had been such bottom-dwelling representatives of the clothing manufacturing capital of the region, where the Merritt Pant Company, aka the Mayfield Pants Company, aka the Merritt Clothing Company, had been operating since 1899. The Mayfield heirs began to patch up their holes after 36. In fact, the very next season, the Clothiers clotheslined all comers, 
outfighting the Jackson Generals for a playoff berth in a one-game showdown, then racing past the Union City Greyhounds three games to none, and downing the Fulton Eagles four games to one. That first championship, earned with key contributions from Vincent Moon Mullen, Ed O'Connell, and Jerome Witt, was the start of a nice pattern for the Colliers. They made the playoffs in 38 and reached the finals in 39, playing officially under the moniker of the parent club Browns before disappearing until after the war. Wearing civilian dress in 46, the Clothiers returned to the winner's circle, making the playoffs for the first of two straight years. After an ugly 48 and 49, they looked sharp again with a new Pittsburgh affiliation in 50, once again winning a league championship, and they stitched together another fine season the next year despite coming undone in the playoffs. Attendance began to fall off after a fashion, and even as they beat the pants off opponents a few times under the management of Austin Knickerbocker in 1953, the Clothiers failed to seamlessly pull together the elements of success. In the middle of the 1955 campaign, one of the Kitty League teams, the Madisonville Miners, went under, and the rest of the circuit called it quits at season's end, canceling the playoffs due to a lack of revenue. And that's how the Clothiers folded. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams scaled down in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Lizard Lick Iguanas. B. The Shantytown Rattlers. C. The Pocomoke City Salamanders. Want to know the answer? Kiss a frog. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is trying to pull his eyes away from the World Cup, but he just can't kick it. Hey, that'll do it for this week's episode. Huge thanks to Columbia Fireflies and uh, for Benjamin Hill and Josh Jackson and the vacant Italian-traveling Sam P. Dykstra. My name is Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week.